miss the show no worries we've got you covered on our podcast on point tonight the bank of governor made an announcement about the economy today and it was well talk of a recession possibly moving into depression and his solution is spend 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 okay that's great a lot of canadians don't have the money to do that we'll talk to a lawyer who is uh, looking into the land claims disputes and he's been looking into them for over 50 years in uh, the area of caledonia because he's a lawyer and Facts matter, and he seems to have the facts that seem to dispute the ongoing dialogue that we're hearing now. So we talked to him, and we'll talk to the lead author of a report that has been looking into democracy during the pandemic and whether or not it is protected, because oftentimes it can get threatened in one of these emergencies. And surprisingly, surprisingly, people think our democracy is fine right now. But I had to push back on that one. Let's get talking. Getting through to you. That's the point. Do you understand? There is a point. That point where enough is enough. Here's Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. Listen. I actually got a message from a mom that uh, their kids were being taught by this teacher and, and talk about angry. Oh my goodness. Not angry at us, but angry that the, the teacher would, would not follow the proper protocols per se. Everyone else has to follow the protocols except uh, those who put them in place. Alex Pearson with you on this October 28th. Hope you had a great day. Good news for me as I woke up this morning. Uh, it only took 28 days, but I did finally get my son's COVID test back uh, and it was negative. Now, I actually didn't actually think it wasn't going to be negative because I knew he had a cold. But of course, back when um, we were talking 28 uh, days ago, the protocol was that if you uh, if your kid was sick, they had to get tested before coming back to school. And my kid was out of school for a week and it would have been a lot longer, but I had to do a lot of running around and uh, the near impossible task of getting a doctor's note, which finally got him back in class. Otherwise, uh, he'd still be out. And I asked Toronto Health, like, what gives? Like, what is going on? And they explained to me that, um, well, there were technical issues at the Humber River Church testing site, which opened that day, which then leads to uh, the question of, well, how many others have been lost in the system and how uh, many more in the same position as I am? And then how are these policy decisions even being made given all these testing and tracing issues that uh, seem to indicate that uh, the data is not complete? But uh, today, the premier, of course, was challenged. It was all about this Catholic teacher who went to work with COVID symptoms, refused to wear a mask while teaching, and, uh, and that school ended up being closed down. Now, the teacher's been fined. And the premier was rightly pissed off because the teacher broke protocols. But the teacher did at least get a fine, uh, likely won't be fired because we don't do that. So then you wonder, why is it okay that his own MPP, Sam Oosterhoff, breaks protocols? I mean, why does he get nothing more than this verbal lashing? Because, as you'll recall, he busted himself by posting a photograph, which shows him crammed into a crowd of 40 with not a mask in sight. And you have to think to yourself, like, how stupid can you be? Because this guy's got a staff that triple check all the things he does. But why is he get getting a pass from the premier? Especially, especially if he broke the restaurant's rules and ignored all these requests by the restaurant's owner, the staff, that they had to mask up. Because you know that if the restaurants had been caught making this kind of, uh, you know, doing the maskless thing, they'd have gotten a fine, if not shut down. 
And as an elected official, Userhoff should know and would know better than anybody. He had no right to put them in the position. And, you know, Ford was asked about it again and again today. And based on that alone, he should have been punished. How can you accept his apology so easily? And what message does that send to all these restaurants that have to follow all the rules or face closure? Well, again, uh, Sam came out and admitted he was wrong. He's going to do better, and he will do better. Uh, we represent the people, and yes, uh, you you have to uh, make sure that you follow the protocols. Yeah, you, you and me, we're the ones who have to follow the rules, or we get called yahoos. But this uh, MPP somehow gets an excuse, and um, he can't be fired. Of course, you can't fire him. He was elected, but the premier, I think, should have benched him. Because you had, I think for Ford, you know, you have this chance to put the, the talk into walk on an issue that has been a big, big problem. And instead, like so many other elected officials, including himself, who's been caught a couple of times breaking the rules he made, um, it gets passed. You know, everything's hunky-dory, I guess. Having said that, for all those now demanding his resignation, Mr. Userhoff, why then does Health Minister Patty Haju get a pass? I don't get that one at all, because on Sunday... The one person who should most lead by example, she got busted with a mask as she sat in the executive lounge at Pearson Airport. And there she was, pictured with no mask anywhere in sight, talking to someone, and then kind of dismissed it saying, well, I took my mask off because I was eating and drinking. And yet there is nary a drop of liquid or even a crumb to be found around her. I don't know, maybe she had a sandwich hidden down her pants. I don't know. But so far, all it's gotten is a shrug. And Pearson's got strict rules posted everywhere about masking. And you will recall recall that hysteria leveled at both Andrew Shearer and, and Brian Pallister. Well, remember, they got caught maskless at Pearson Airport. Calls for their heads. Well, that lasted weeks. But Mr. But Miss Patty had you? I mean, eh, whatever. So what I think seems clear is that there are two sets of rules. You know, a guy can take his kids out rollerblading in a parking lot and get a ticket, but the health minister, who, by the way, should have been punted a long time ago for many, many other other reasons, uh, she gets a pass. Because this is not a first offense. I mean, this is the same federal minister who was busted flying back and forth several times in the spring. At the same time frame, she ordered us to stay home. Again, shrug. I mean, this minister makes the most important health decisions that affect millions. She's also, also the woman who flip-flopped on masks early on and has been finger-wagging ever since about, you know, mask up. So she's the last person who should be caught bare-faced. And then, of course, when she gets caught, she tells a bold-faced lie about why it was off. I mean, just, just at least be honest. And Tuesday, was it Tuesday or Wednesday? Tuesday, uh, Trudeau stated that COVID sucks. And you know what? He is right. But here's what else sucks, Mr. Prime Minister. It sucks that those of you who make these rules don't follow them. And what sucks even more is that there's no penalty when you do, but there are for us little people. So why hasn't he been grilled about his own minister? I mean, certainly Premier Ford gets his his grilling daily. Why is the Prime Minister, Prime minister not asked these questions? Why isn't the minister herself asked these questions? I mean, what would they say? I mean, Trudeau broke his own rules, too. Remember, he crossed the border into Quebec to visit his family on Easter after telling us all that we had to stay home. And this is not being a, a, a tilly-tally, tattletale. I mean, I'm the last person to buy into cancel culture or these gotcha moments, but we either have rules or we don't. And we have 
bigger, bigger pressure uh, pressures and issues to worry about. I get that. But every time one of these politicians are caught doing what they tell us we can't do, it erodes trust. And it also erodes buy-in to these rules that we're told we have to follow. And Daryl Bricker of Ipsos Polling dug into this issue, and it reveals that uh, half of Canadians are tired of following the ever-changing rules, and you know that we're doing our best, and it's still not enough. The thing that is, is really worrisome in all of this is even though people are complying, even though they're saying they're fatigued with following all of this, the mental health consequences are, are clearly beginning to mount. Uh, so, you know, nearly half of people that we interviewed said that they were struggling. Um, with, uh, with with dealing with this situation. So, uh, you know, there's the direct health consequences, but then there's these indirect things that are starting to build and, and, and create potentially also, uh, you know, really serious health care uh, problems, maybe not from infection, but certainly uh, mental health concerns. I mean, the bottom line is, and my point being, if the rule makers, you know, are seen to be breaking the rules themselves, then they have absolutely no right to be asking us to give up a Halloween or Christmas they have absolutely no right to stop gyms and restaurants from opening or or from us visiting loved ones because they can't expect us to make all these sacrifices when they themselves are seen not doing it themselves. And the pandemic fatigue is very real. And I think we're starting to see the buy-in waning. So it's time that, you know, those in charge either lead by example or get out of our way. Right? No? Well, that is the uh, Bank of Governor, Tiff Macklem, who warned us today that we're in for a very, very long and a very tough recovery and one that teeters right now on a deep recession, possibly falling into a depression by spring. And there was a whole bunch of technical talk on bonds and benchmarks, and that's when I kind of glaze over. But I think key to what we learned today is that, yes, interest rates are going to remain low. But the big message from the uh, governor was that Canadians should borrow, 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 spend, spend, spend to save our economy. But when he said that, I kind of wondered, you know, does he know that a lot of Canadians don't have jobs, let alone money to spend? In fact, if you look at a new survey by FP Canada, 42% of Canadians say they aren't even going to survive this second wave. And a third of Canadians say they're not going to recover ever from the hit of this pandemic. That's a huge number of people. Ian Lee is, of course, with uh, Carlton at Sprout School of Business. He joins us now. Good to have you, Ian. Um, good afternoon, Alex. Good evening, Alex. It's uh, my pleasure right. to speak with you. All right. So, what was your big uh, takeaway, and what you what do you think people should should understand? Um, there's no question that uh, we're still in in trouble. Um, the economy has not recovered completely. I mean, I'm I'm um, not as pessimistic um, as I was back uh, three or four months ago. At the same time, I don't want to leave you with the idea that I think happy days are here again. Uh, they're not. Um, we're very much in the um, what the Economist magazine calls the 90-10 economy. Mm -hmm. um, big chunks of the economy have returned uh, very strongly, and you can see that that's why the numbers look so unpredictable. You know, the housing markets are going up, and the parking lots at Home Depot are, and Rona and Lowe's are full. And yet, mm -hmm. at the same time, we, we know there's uh, significant unemployment, and there's more need for more assistance for these people. And that's because there's parts of the economy have recovered. The problem is there's significant parts that haven't. And I'm talking travel, I'm talking accommodation, I'm talking restaurants, I'm talking entertainment, you know, music concerts, theater, and that sort of thing. And they employ a lot of people. And yeah. uh, these people are flat on their back. 
And so, uh, you know, he was, uh, he was I, I guess he was trying to project a mixed message and right. saying that we're dependent on consumers to, uh, to really drive the recovery. But as you noted, <laughs> there's a lot of consumers that are either tapped out because they're already ex- significantly indebted or they're, they're unemployed because, you know, they're waiting for the market to return and for restaurants or for airplane travel and that sort of thing. So very uh-huh. much, very mixed going forward. And the whole forecast was dependent on a couple of things happening. No, no real major second wave mm-hmm. and a vaccine coming to market in 2021. Well, those are two very large assumptions. Yeah, and I was going to ask you about that. It's like it's all contingent on ifs and buts and it really is on the pandemic. And, you know, the bottom line is um, I think people do want to spend, you know, it's easy to go online and spend money. But but the overriding and what we're seeing in the polling is that people are very scared. People are hitting the wall. um, And I hope my husband's not listening. But every time uh, and we're both employed right now, but every time I go on Amazon and order something, he he is on me like, you know, don't spend, don't spend. And I think that is a conversation, Ian, happening in a lot of households where people are saying, look, don't buy what we don't need because what might have been okay in the spring uh, and a bit of a novelty for people, I don't get the sense that that is uh, what's going to be happening in this next quarter. Alex, I think you just hit the nail right on the head. When you look at the savings, that's why I say it's so mixed. When you look at the savings rate, the savings rate's gone through the roof. People are sitting on their money. So I mm-hmm. think that's what what uh, the governor was referring to, to those people who are sitting on money in their bank account who aren't spending. He's saying, please go out and spend, basically. But mm-hmm. as you noted, there's lots of people that aren't in that position. So it's very much a mixed bag. But I looked at the, uh, at the charts, for example, in the monetary policy report today, and uh, it, 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 you know, it's, it's fascinating when you look at the actual the savings. Um, and again, this isn't everybody. I don't suggest that everybody's saving. There's lots of people who are not saving. They're going deeper into debt because they're unemployed. But those who have their jobs and and did not get laid off and uh, continue to be paid, and of course that includes the broader public sector, and I'm part of that, full disclosure, you know, teaching yeah. everybody in education and health care and public service continue to be paid. But the savings rate has never been so high in such a very long time. And uh, because people are, what you just said, they're, they're, they're frightened for the future. And so when you get frightened, you tend to cut back on spending. And you say, gee whiz, I better start saving for the rainy day in case, you know, the roof falls in down the road. And and as Keynes taught us 70 years ago, that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. If people yeah. all cut back, well, then guess what? <laughs> More people get laid off, and then it becomes true because people aren't spending. You know, it's uh, because one person's exp- expenditures is somebody else's salary. When I right. go to the restaurant, and, and, I'm employing people. When I go and eat out at the restaurant, I'm employing the servers. I'm employing the people in the kitchen. So when I stop going to those restaurants, I, those people are not getting paid. Right. And and the bottom line is, I mean, there's this very big growing divide. It's all great and dandy if you're guaranteed your pension and you're yeah. guaranteed your paycheck and you're guaranteed yeah. your job. But there are an awful lot of people uh, who aren't guaranteed any of this. That's right. Um, That's right. And, and so they don't they don't want to spend their money. But, you know, we're going into the most important. We're already in that most important retail time, uh, Christmas yeah. sales. Yeah. We need Christmas spending. And I don't get the sense. Um, that there is going to be that Christmas spending uh, that I think uh, those in charge would like to see. And you can't blame people for that. 
I, I think you're right. You know, someone, and I'm not changing the subject at all, but someone like David Rosenberg, very distinguished economist in Toronto, he says that the U.S. is in a depression now. And he's, mm-hmm. he's not some, you know, crazy person. And, and, of course, the U.S. is the largest economy in the world. It's right next door to us. We're very tightly integrated with the U.S. economy. And then, of course, you have all the uncertainty around the election, which is in, what, six days, seven days? Mm-hmm. I guess it's one week tonight. One, six days from now. And uh, <laughs> so there's all this uncertainty. And I think that when people become worried about the future, you tend to dial back, especially I don't mean going to Starbucks so much or, yeah. or Tim Hortons. You dial back on the big stuff. You dial back on the big ticket expenditures, you know, cars. So I expect yeah. this winter we're going to see car sales, I think, decline, which is big ticket. And we're going to see house. I mean, it hasn't happened yet, but I think we'll start to see uh, house sales uh, dial back uh, as people become more nervous about the future. And, and a moment yeah. ago, I said the 90-10 economy. I'm not suggesting that only 10% are on their flat on their back, although it's 90% GDP has returned to work, 90% of GDP has returned to work, 10% hasn't. I think when you look at the employment, unemployment numbers, it's probably more like a third of people are either unemployed or have returned back only on a part-time basis, or they have a job where they uh, it's very precarious, meaning they're, they don't have a clue if they're going to be laid off tomorrow morning. And so there's probably about a third of all Canadians, and that's a large number, who are sitting there on pins and needles because they're either you know, flat in their back or they're worried that they could be laid off tomorrow morning. So that ties into the numbers you were, you were uh, suggesting a moment ago. And it is an absolute terrible, as you well know, terrible place for people to be. It's, uh, it yes. keeps you up at night. It is very stressful. It uh, you know Absolutely. breaks up families. Um, and, and there's a reason I think we haven't seen a budget from the Trudeau government this year. I mean, we're only going to get a fiscal update, but why would he want to give us the full picture of what's going on? But, uh, you know, I don't... Um, I, I'm hoping that he dials back on the the green stuff and all that uh, you know idealistic uh, green ideology and focuses exclusively on the people that need help. And no. we don't even know when the budget. Uh, Christy Freeland hasn't told us. I mean, it's coming. We know there's a budget coming. We don't know if it's going to be this mm. fall or next uh, January, February. But I hope that they focus really focus on on the people that are uh, flat in their back and need help rather than off on their green, uh, you know, fantasizing and, uh, you know, that we're all going to be driving electric cars in the next year or two. Um, I I hope they focus on the people that need help. I would just like them to get the aid package out the door that still uh, hasn't been passed through legislation for business, but uh, who am I to do Business needs help right now, for sure, especially the small business sector and the restaurants, the gyms, and the uh, the bars and that sort of thing, because they're just, they're just being, they're just being, I mean, just destroyed devastated yeah Yeah. all right ian we'll keep in touch and talk again i appreciate your insight always thanks very much alex yeah it is ian lee joining us and uh i'm not so sure they're going to go away from their green dreams i mean why else do you think they put in um the governor tiff macklem i mean he's a very green kind of guy but uh it would be right to ian would be right that they should not experiment right now Facts matter, and uh, I'm not really sure we're getting all those facts when it comes to the latest land claim dispute escalating in Caledonia, because while we do see the violence and we hear the cries from occupiers of the Mackenzie Meadows subdivision, which is uh, this new development, uh, you know, they say it's illegal and being built on unceded land. But then you got to look at history, and it seems to suggest 
otherwise. There's a, a lawyer out of Haldeman County who has been practicing law for 50 years and has been studying these land claim issues. And he writes in the Hamilton Spectator that you need only look back to the historical records where you actually learn from the documents, which were written back in 1844, which say 45 Six Nation chiefs and council expressed their intention to reserve particular lands for their exclusive use as a reserve and surrender the remaining 200 acres near Brantford to be sold by the Crown. And the lot where this Mackenzie Meadow subdivision is to be built is on this land that was legally sold. And that original deed has never actually been challenged at any time or when this development went through the approval process. Ed McCarthy is that lawyer who joins us now from Hagersville. Good to have you. Thank you. And Ed, I know I've simplified this because I read your article and my goodness, you'd need uh, literally an hour and a whole lot of history lessons to get through it, but that's why you've done all the hard work. It's a complicated issue, but you kind of lay out this historical, you know, area of land and how it was parceled dating back to the 1840s. And you've got, you know, you cite several experts on Indigenous land claims. And by the legal definition, this development hasn't broken any rules. That's my interpretation. Right. It's all into the interpretation. So how do you interpret it, and why are others interpreting it differently? Well, maybe I should be a little more forceful in interpretation. That's what the historical records say. Uh, It wasn't just that they wanted to surrender land 200 acres near Branford. The gist of it is that they wanted to reserve the township of Tuscarora and a chunk of Oneida Township uh, that I mentioned in the article, and uh, some other land near Brantford, and um, surrender the rest of the crown for sale. And that's the way that uh, things have proceeded all these 175 years ever since. And the um, there was a specific reference to the part of Oneida Township that's relevant here, and it was all the lands on the west side of the tier of lots Uh, fronting on the Plank Road. Now, the Plank Road is the original name for Highway 6 and Argyle Street going into Caledonia. So that would basically be all the farms on the west side of that road. So when he got to the back or west end of those farms, from that point on, it was to be reserve land in Oneida Township right up to the boundary line with Tuscarora and, of course, all of Tuscarora Township and then some other parcels around Brantford. So that's what was reserved, and the rest was to be sold. And um, and that's what happened. And now, it's another story about what happened to the money that from the sales, but um, but the historical records, to me, are quite clear that um, that uh, the, the specific lands to be reserved were, were the lands I just referred to, and the rest of the Haldeman tract was to be was to be sold, and the money invested for the benefit of the Six Nations. All right. So, so you know, there are those that will argue that these 45 chiefs of council way back in 1844 won't represent the views of present-day uh, hereditary chiefs. And therein lies, you know, the challenge where you might have, or not you specifically, but there may be historical um, agreements in place by these 45 chiefs. But, hey, uh, by present-day standards, they don't re- represent all the views today. And, and, it, and many will see it as changing of the, the goalposts, but it does create these challenge. Put it this way, if, if your great-great-grandparents or my great-great-grandparents signed off a farm that we thought we should have 175 years ago, 
well, we don't own it. We can't claim it anymore. It's been, it's gone. And uh, that's what, in effect, uh, happened here, as near as I can tell. Uh, why else would um, these 40-odd uh, chiefs sign this document? And, by the way, the, the, their signatures are uh, recorded, or there's a copy of them in David Fox's uh, 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 article, which um, is on his website. And um, there's a handwritten document of the minutes of this meeting. And, um, you know, and that's what the government acted on over the years. And uh, as a result of, of, of surrendering those lands, then the government began to sell them. And that's the original crown patents or crown deeds, as they're called. And that's what happened in, uh, in this particular area. And as a matter of fact, <clears throat> Fox points out in his article that the the lot the lot to the uh, to the I think it's to the north right beside Mackenzie Meadows was actually sold by a member of the Six Nations to a to a, a white settler and uh, the the Mackenzie Meadows uh, property uh, was uh, occupied by a white settler like a, a, a squatter as they call them <clears throat> because there were provisions in what the chief signed that it wasn't to cover any land that was still in the possession of six members of the Six Nations. So this property was not in the possession of any member of the Six Nations at that time. And so the government then sold the land and gave a crown deed to, I've forgotten the guy's name, I think it was Nichols, was the first one to acquire that, that land from the crown. And that starts the chain of title that everybody's relied upon, uh, for all these years, right down to the present owners of Mackenzie Meadows. Right. And you do point out in your article that the only relevant judicial proceeding initiated by Six Nations, which uh, dates back to 1995, will go to trial to, you know, in 2022. But it does not dispute the ownership of the land, but instead the accounting of the proceeds of the sale of those lands. What happened and... to the money? And that's a big issue, and that needs to be resolved. And that's a that's a, an issue that uh, is, you know, it's fair game for Six Nations people to be concerned about that because that was, uh, that's what was supposed to happen. And a lot of those um, monies got loaned out on, uh, uh, and uh, was lost. And uh, so the government needs to account because they were, in effect, trustees. It was, the surrender was to surrender and trust to the Crown for sale. So mm-hmm. the Crown was like a, like if you have a if you gave somebody a power of attorney to sell your yeah. property, you'd have to account for it to the person that gave you the power of attorney. So it's sort of like a, sort of an analogy along those lines. Right. And so when we get that decision, once that is settled, and it should be settled if that is the outstanding matter, will Caledonia uh, finally see a cohesion and a peace with all these uh, developments? Well, not likely, because there's uh, there's certain members of the Six Nations that just don't accept what's happened. And uh, I don't know how to accommodate them, because, uh, like I said before, if their ancestors surrendered this land, then... Uh, it's gone so, so far as their claim to it is concerned. No question about it. Um, they, the original um, uh, uh, Haldeman grant was for possession of land on each side of the river, six miles deep, and uh, but it was way too much land for uh, for them to handle. And not all the Six Nations. If you read Fox's article, he goes into it in great detail. Mm-hmm. Not all the Six Nations members from. Uh, the Mohawk Valley in New York State, where they where they originally lived, 
at the time of the American Revolution. Not all of them came up to uh, some. Some went to Ohio. Some went down to um, right. Bay of Quinte, and some went uh, different places. So, but the ones that did come, there was way too much land for them to handle, and it just led to squatters taking it over. And uh, there was the the Six Nations people were spending money to defend their land, and they just had too much. So that's why. It was recommended that they they move to a concentrated settlement that they could look after and manage, and uh, that's what the purpose of the Weather Reserve was. Well, it is a very complicated issue, one we will not solve in a, a few minutes, but I appreciate the uh, history lesson, and I might call on you again. Okay, very good. Well, if you want to get even more information, talk to David Fox. Might look him up. Thank you very much, Ed. Thanks, bye. That is Ed McCarthy. And there you go. Not a simple issue, but um, but certainly uh, there is a history to it, and it is worth uh, reading into and about. But I'm sure we are not uh, talking about it for the last time. Well, let's put our COVID health all to the side for a second and dig into the health of our democracy. Because all the shutdowns, the restrictions, all the noise of the elections next door, I mean, when it's comes to times of emergency, we can see an erosion of trust, it can divide us. And I was interested because a group called the Samara Center of Democracy did an intensive study looking into the health of Canada's democracy. They took data from the spring of 2019 to the spring of 2020. And according to their their findings, 80% of Canadians are satisfied with the state of our democracy. And apparently Canadians trust the government more, were less cynical about political leaders, and less nostalgic for the past. And then I scratched my head and said, does that sound right? Dr. Mike Morden is the lead author of this report. He's an interim executive director at the Samara Center for Democracy. Good to have you, doctor. Thank you so much for having me. All right. So would the study look different? I mean, how can we compare what findings we had in the spring to how people are now? Because we know um, that people are a lot more tired and a lot less forgiving. Yeah, no, that's true, and it's important to note. I mean, any poll is just a snapshot in time. And where there has probably been some change is how we're evaluating our governments. I mean, I think Canadians very rightfully have a little bit less goodwill towards our governments in the second wave uh, than they did uh, during the first. Having said that, you know, there is some tracking which shows some of these trends have been sustained. And, and, you know, the survey data we're looking at Asks a lot more than just how people people are feeling about their governments. It asks how they're feeling about the democratic system uh, more broadly, and asks sort of general questions about how they feel our democracy is working. And uh, the results were uh, eye-opening for us, uh, particularly given how hard this year has been. It's, I think, very compelling uh, to discover that at a time when Canadians were being really imposed on and asked to um, ask more of by their governments than is typically the case, you know, to stay home, to shut your business, uh, you know, not be able to visit your parents, grandparents, whatever. We were actually very content to do that. We were happy to mobilize and actually felt better about our system than we normally do. Right. And I would challenge, you know, is there a part two to this? Because I think what we saw in the spring, which was hashtag, look at my bread, and there were people out hitting their pots and pans, and there seemed to be this, you know, we're all in this together. I don't get the sense at all that that is 
what's happening now because now we're starting to feel not just the fatigue of COVID, but there's real financial strain, there's real financial uncertainty, and there's a, a, a divide over you know are we are those in charge actually making the best decisions based on data, based on what are the decision makers? So I'd be interested. Is there a next part to this? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's a fair question, and we don't have that data, but um, you know, there's there's some indications that we're still, uh, you know, pretty surprisingly satisfied with our governments. Again, I think Canadians are permitted to be asking more critical questions. I think Canadians are, you know, in their rights to start to feel a little worn down by this whole thing. But it's nevertheless positive that we're starting from this place of relative cohesion. And it didn't work out this way everywhere. Uh, it's true that a lot of countries saw you know, increases in support for the incumbent government, for example, and that's typical in a crisis. But we looked at comparative data as well and, and found that, in, in, for example, in the summer, that um, there were there were a few countries which experienced the same kind of surge in trust and satisfaction, the same magnitude of improvement. Uh, there were a few countries where the citizens felt as united as they did in Canada, I mean, for example, uh, Americans were asked if their country was more or less united um, because of the pandemic and overwhelmingly said less. And Canadians were asked the same question and overwhelmingly said more. So none of this is inevitable. Uh, and, you know, I, I, and, and these are important indications of what we're capable of as a political community when we're challenged. That does not to say that governments don't have to continue to earn our trust. Right. And I'd be curious, how much um, does the situation in America, given the, um, you know, the polarization, uh, you know, in their politics and, you know, the fascination for whatever reason that Canadians seem to have, uh, you know, following American politics over their own politics, how much did the American situation kind of come into this study? Because I actually wish Canadians here did more pay more attention to things that are going on in our da- democratic institutions because I don't know if they'd be that cheery about it because as long as they're paying attention to Trump, then they don't really see the reality here. Yeah, I've heard it said it's kind of like trying to tune a piano when your next door neighbor is, you know, blaring grindcore. It's it's hard to get people to focus on the, the fine attention we need in our democratic system. I think that's part of the reason why Canadians are so satisfied with their democratic system. And again, it's not entirely inevitable. I mean, most democratic countries are watching uh, this, the uh, spectacle in uh, the United States with, with mounting horror, and yet you also find in countries like the United Kingdom, even Australia, uh, similar kinds of trends where uh, trust and satisfaction in democracy has collapsed over the last about half decade. It just hasn't happened here, it's increased. So I think that a piece of that is explained in the fact that we're always, always evaluating ourselves relative to what's happening down there. I also think that if we if we felt that the same processes were underway, um, particularly around uh, polarization, uh, you know, that would be reflected in this data too. And, and Canadians quite rightly perce- are perceiving the fact that we haven't. Um, divided into these sort of two separate societies warring within the, the bosom of a single state yet. Uh, we haven't gone down that road. That's not to say we don't have our own problems. Right. And and I don't know, uh, Doctor, if we will know that and the, the state of our democracy until years after uh, this, this pandemic, because we have had to give up a lot of civil liberties. And I think people are very kind of suspect about it. They're certainly getting tired of it. But when do you realistically 
think that we'll get a real pulse and temperature on the state of our democracy and how it fared through this emergency. Right. And, and I think the key thing is we have to come out of this period. There's, you know, there's, there's sort of two, two separate tasks for those of us who are concerned about Canadian democracy. One is to keep things working reasonably okay under the circumstances during the pandemic. And we and others have been looking, for example, at how Parliament and the legislatures have been evolving, recognizing that they can't behave exactly how they normally do, but making sure that they still meet their essential obligations. That's one. The second thing is we have to get back to normal or ideally something better than normal uh, once this is behind us. Of course, we don't know when that'll be, but it's you know, conceivably within the next, well, uh, you know, I don't want to project uh, um, forecast. Uh, so we're not going to know the longer term effects on our democracy until this thing is behind us. I don't think when I look at these uh, these numbers showing this is a unique civic moment in the hearts and minds of Canadians, I don't think that'll be lasting. It's probably already dissipated and we should behave as though uh, it will dissipate very quickly, certainly once the crisis is behind us. So we should, so we, we should try to you know, think of ways to take advantage of it. One of the things we found was that despite, you know, this sort of mostly cross the board positive shift in feeling Canadians still don't really feel like they have any control or much. They're no more likely to feel that they have control over what governments do. And I think that this is a good moment uh, for governments to concede some control, given that we're in this kind of um, uh, imagining a rebuild mm -hmm. stage. It's a good time to empower Canadians. Yeah, you're darn right, doctor, because we are going to be paying for it and paying for it in decades. All right. Well, we'll look forward to uh, Chapter 2 on that. And I thank you for your time. Thank you. That is Dr. Mike Morton joining us here. And I do. I think it's over time when you actually truly can measure the temperature of, of how people are feeling. All right. Thank you for listening. Of course, you can join us Monday through Friday, 630 to 10. I'm Alex Pearson on Point, And this is Global News Radio.